Welcome to the StoryCraft Cafe. Come in, grab a cup of your favorite beverage, and get ready to join the storytelling conversation. StoryCraft Cafe is brought to you by Dabble, the ultimate cloud-based fiction writing software. Here we're going to bring together storytellers from all walks to encourage and empower you to craft your best story. Thanks for joining us again here in the StoryCraft Cafe. We've got an amazing show for you today. Join us over at StoryCraft.Cafe so that you can be notified of upcoming events and live author hangouts that we have all throughout the week. StoryCraft.Cafe. Thank you to Dabble, as always, for making this podcast possible. Well, thanks for joining us live here in the StoryCraft Cafe. I'm your host, Hank Garner. Today, I am super excited to have Ben Perkert on the show with me. He has a phenomenal new book. It's called The Men Can't Be Saved. And uh, Ben, I'll have to admit to you, um, I was not prepared for how much fun this book was and how much joy I got out of it, even at times when I felt like I shouldn't be getting joy out of this book. It was (laughs) (laughs) it was it was a lot of fun to read. Um, So welcome to the show today. Hank, thank you. So nice to meet you. And thanks for the the kind words. That's great. Absolutely. Um, Ben, I I love to start with a fun question to kind of get the tone set for the show. And uh, the question I have for you today is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? Oh, wow. Huh. You start, it's like, it's like a good (laughs) icebreaker, but it's it's also like the hardest one because you're, there's a lot of ice, you know, my memories are are buried pretty deep (laughs) in the winter tundra of my life. (laughs) Um, Well, I'll say this. I think that for me, growing up, I loved to watch a lot of comedy. My favorite comedian, my favorite actor was Robin Williams. And I mean, Robin Williams had a lot of big roles when I was growing up in the nineties. He, he was, um, he narrated the genie in Aladdin. He was in hook. Um, then later Mrs. Doubtfire, like he had a number of hits in a row, but before he did all that, he had this part in like this, I think it was like the frog prince. I watched it probably in like 1988 or 1989 when I was three or four years old. And if you know Robin Williams, he just can't help but be Robin Williams in everything he does, right. you know? Um, oh, yeah. Um, that's it's, like, it's like having a box of Robin Williamses. Yes. Just, just so much of him. Yes. All that energy and effusiveness and untamed creativity right. and also just a sense of danger. Like, you know, he, he's just going to go wherever he's going to go. Um, and even when I was three or four watching him, I just loved how he put everything into his art and his comedy and um, it just compelled me. So, you know, I wanted to be a comedian actually, before I think I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be able to reach people in the way that he did and writing poems and writing fiction. That was, that ended up being the vehicle for me to do it. So when you, when you said that you laughed at, you know, reading my book and you got a lot of joy out of it, that's a great compliment. Well, it, I absolutely did. And and I agree with your love and admiration uh, for Robin Williams, because, uh, you know, 
whether you think of him as an actor, as a stand-up comic, as he's all of those things. And he was so much larger than life. And yeah, I think we're all better for being in a world that had Robin Williams in it for sure. Mm, yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Um, you have um, not not only this uh, this first book of fiction that you published, uh, you've also published poetry. What 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 got you interested in poetry? I, you know, I had great teachers. I had a terrific English teacher in middle school. If she's watching. Hi, Betsy. Uh, Betsy <laughs> Barbado. And she just loved poetry more than anything. And it was her love of it that made me love it too. I just wanted to consume poems. And it felt to me like poetry was the place for those of us who just were obsessed with words. And if you loved words, if you loved the sound of words, if you loved playing with words, you know, imagery, poetry was going to be for you. So that even more than fiction was the road that I pursued. And I studied it in middle school and then high school and then in college I became an English major and I did a poetry thesis. So fiction is, is relatively new for me, but poetry came first. Poetry is, is one of those things that, you know, they start students off in I don't know, third or fourth grade, you know, writing simple poetry in in English class. And it's, it's something that's very easy to get into and extremely difficult to master. Um, you know, uh, and, and the, there's something about uh, the economy of words and being able to, um, you know, uh, allow the reader to tap into vast arrays of emotion in such a small space. Um, was it the um, was it that sort of power that that poetry held over you? Was it this this kind of um, elusive uh, sort of thing? You know, it, it's one of those things that that we all can try our hand at, but it's so difficult to get right and to to craft the perfect poem. Um, mm. I, I, I'm having trouble putting it in words, but I, I, I think you're getting across what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I, I, I am. I think, or at least I, I think I am. Yeah. You know, on the one hand, you talk about poetry in terms of control or in terms of power. And some part of me wants to say it's the complete opposite. Like if you think about what a poem is, a poem is less the imposition of a kind of power and more of an admission or a confession or a vulnerability of, I don't understand the world fully, but I'm going to, I'm going to try, or I'm going to ask questions. I'm going to look at the moon, not as someone who has seen the moon 10,000 times before, but I'm going to see it as a child would with a, with a complete openness, if not innocence. And to move through the world with that kind of humility and that childlike vulnerability, that just felt like the most amazing way to live a life to me. Whereas so many other educational pursuits, you know, I, I think science is incredibly important. I think history is very important. I think all these things are very important. But from where I sit, sometimes in my experience of them, they assert their own mastery over the world. Economists try to explain everything in terms of the economy, right? And in my experience, sure. poets don't use poetry to explain the world. They use poems to interrogate or ask pointed questions. So that's, that's one answer. But the other answer is, you know, I think 
you're not, you know, I, I agree with you to write a poem that has very few words in it. It is an exercise of control. It is, you know, you're, you're, you're molding a very small bit of clay and trying to get it right. So I guess I'm giving you both sides of, of the answer, but both of them yeah. feel true to me. Yeah. Um, in, in the world where we find ourselves and the, uh, the state of publishing these days and um you know there the, and there's lots to be said about the publishing industry but where does the publishing industry exist for poets these days um is is it a a difficult uh place to break into and and maybe that much more difficult to be successful at what what do you think about the uh the reading audience at large and the acceptance of poetry and the place for it in the commercial marketplace? I think it's really hard. I think it's really hard. I think that there are a lot of poets who are writing novels and why is that happening? I think right. one, an one answer is poets love to experiment. Poets are creative. Poets don't abide by conventions of genre. Poets like to try new things. I think all of that is true. But I also think there's a there's a clear economic economic motive. You're not sure. seeing a lot of poets um, sign lucrative book deals for poetry collections. It's not to say the fiction is really lucrative either, but in comparison to poetry, it's a whole different thing. I, right. I never I never expected any I never expected to be able to make a life or a livelihood off of poetry. It just didn't seem available to me. There are certainly a handful of poets who, in the U.S. at least do sell in quantities where they can, you know, support themselves, but it's, we're talking about a minuscule, a minuscule amount. So I think there are always reasons to say that it's changing or that certain poets who sell in such high volume that things are going to shift radically. Instagram was supposed to change everything because now you can just see a single poem and, um, the extent to which that translates to sales, I think is an open question, but I think that, you know, what really matters is poems connecting with people. And right. if you have a poem that reaches one person and changes that person's life or changes their worldview, even just a little bit versus a poem that reaches 10,000 people, but doesn't impact them necessarily all that much. They read it and then they immediately forget about it. Who's to say what the bigger impact is, you know, and, um, I, that, that's sort of how I think about it. Having said that artists need to eat and poets Absolutely. need food and healthcare right. and all those things. Yeah. So as someone who studied poetry, uh, and, um, you know, had worked your craft at it, you also wound up in the, um, advertising, uh, industry. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and a lot of that, fueled the the new book the men can be saved um what was your experience uh coming out of college going to work in in advertising and um you know was it was it everything that you thought it would be was it more was it less hmm. yeah so so coming out of college i was very naive i wanted to be a poet i wanted to be an artist i wanted to you know, I don't know, backpack over Europe with a journal or something. I mean, I, you know, that was the vision I had. And my poetry professor was the one who said, you know, Ben, maybe get a real job, like maybe try the real world. And yeah, I said, well, what am I going to do? You know, I love writing. And she said, well, instead of being a creative writer, why don't you try being a copywriter? 
And that was sort of how it began. And I, I applied for a bunch of jobs, didn't get a whole lot of interviews. And then I found this one job specifically as a tagline copywriter at an ad agency or branding agency in New York. And there were many things I loved about the job. It was a, it was a really fun place to work in your early twenties. There was a lot of travel. There were a lot of, you're working with creative people, you're working with designers, you're staying late, there's free snacks. You know, it, it, it all felt, um, what, given that I had anticipated a life of poetry and poverty, it felt very yeah. luxurious to me. But I also realized pretty early on, this just was not going to be the fulfilling career that I wanted, that I would be much happier trying and failing at creative writing versus staying in the agency world and being successful. I wanted to give it a shot. So once I realized that about myself, I, I knew I had to leave. Yeah. Advertising to me has always uh, been um, a, a form of storytelling. I mean, at, at its core, that's what we're doing. We're trying to communicate something to the end user that will make an emotional connection with them or, um, you know, something that will change the way they feel about something. Um, did, did you see that aspect to advertising when you were in the industry? Did you kind of see that this could be, um, a, a creative pursuit or, you know, does it all kind of get lost in the the day-to-day grind of it all? I, you know, and I should preface everything I say by just reminding folks, this is just my view of it, you know? Sure. Absolutely. I have so many friends who stayed in advertising, stayed in branding and, and found it deeply fulfilling and their experience is, is entirely valid. It's every bit as valid as mine. Sure. I found it really creative. I loved how creative it was. I mean, I had friends who were working in business consulting or banking and stuff like that. And they were so envious that I got to work at a studio with artists and designers and, you know, sketch artists and illustrators and animators. And you're absolutely right. It is, it is an art of storytelling and the people who are good at it, they have a gift and the show Mad Men. Part of why I love that show is that even though the characters are deeply flawed, you get to see the gene when Don Draper's on, he's on and right. same, with, same with Peggy. And there's a, there's a brilliance. So who am I to say that they're not artists? Having said that though, I do believe there is a, a really big difference between making art in service of selling a product versus making art for the sake of making art. So I, I, some people would draw that line maybe differently than I would, but sure. when I, when I was at the agency, I knew that when I had a client, I was trying to create a great tagline for them. I wanted it to be pure poetry, but I also knew that it wasn't really a poem. It was, it was a product. I I think I read somewhere that um, you talked about how Mad Men debuted right uh, about the same time that you went to work in the industry. Um, Seeing a, a, a television representation of the industry, you know, from what, 30, 40 years prior um, and then working in that industry day to day, were you surprised by how much had changed or how much had stayed exactly the same? So that was exactly the thing. We, and it wasn't just me, my colleagues and I, we all loved the show. And part of the reason I think we loved the show is because 
so much of your time is spent explaining to family members what your job is, you know, like, like in this day and age, it's so rare to just say, you know, I'm a surgeon. I operate on people. Most people have jobs that involve data and, you know, platforms. It's confusing. Right. So a show like Mad Men comes on and it's like, Hey, Aunt Matilda, that's sort of what my job is. It's like, you know, it's kind of like Don Draper, except I'm less cool and less problematic, hopefully. Um, so, you know, that show, it was helpful and it was also thrilling to see our world reflected on screen, even though it was from the 1960s, it still felt very contemporary. And part of the reason it also felt contemporary was because we worked with some assholes. I mean, we worked with big egos. We worked with a lot of the same kinds of personalities that you see on that show. So a lot of the drinking and the toxic atmosphere and the sexism, you know, that didn't feel dated to us. It felt very much of, of the moment, which <laughs> felt which like a Tuesday. Itself, yeah. I was like, right. We, we know that guy, Joe from accounting. So right. Um, that, that in and of itself was kind of alarming was wait a minute, look at how little has changed actually, except for the technology, which is all different. The, um, the new book, the men can't be saved. Uh, I, I would assume uh, comes is inspired at least by your time working in the industry Uh, at the time when you were working there, did you, did you have the presence of thought to think uh, I'm going to collect that this will be a valuable story one day? Um, You know, did, did you think in terms of that or was it, was it more just kind of the whole experience has kind of percolated and, and, uh, and, and mellowed for future use? I think it's more the latter. If I, there are certain writers who sort of like magpies building the nests, they're, they're great. Yeah. Just, you know, Oh, I'm going to use this. And then they, they put it. So I think that's a faster process. I mean, I, I started working at the agency in 2007. It's now 2023 and I'm coming out with this book. So yeah, there, there was more of a percolation or whatever cooking, you know, marinating, whatever, whatever the, the cooking metaphor is. Sure. That was more the process for me. And I didn't know that I wanted to write about the agency until I'd left. But working there, particularly during the, the Great Recession in 2008, when so many friends and colleagues were getting laid off. I don't even think I fully realized at the time how much of an impact that had on me. But as time wore on. I found that I wanted to write back toward that moment. Yeah. Um, You have, uh, you've written poetry, published a collection of poems. Uh, You also have done other writing work and, and uh, what was it that let you know that it was time to start working on a novel? Um, You know, I'm fascinated by the moment of creation uh, for a book, because at one moment in time, a a book like this does not exist in any form or fashion. And then maybe one day you start thinking about your experiences or maybe a memory pops in or, uh, you know, you you think of a scenario and then you start casting the scenario in your mind. And then the thing does exist in, in some strange fashion. And then your job as the writer is to excavate this thing and to dig it out and to polish it up. And, you know, then after multiple, multiple drafts, you know, then this thing does exist. Um, mm-hmm. Do you remember what that moment of creation was like for this book? There, 
I want to give you a single moment, you know, but for me, I think it was more an accretion of, of moments. My main character, Seth, he gets laid off really early in, in the book. And I can remember the great recession. It wasn't a moment. It was a period of time. Yeah. I'd come in on a Monday and, Oh, where's Susie? I need, I need Susie to approve my reports. Oh, well, you know, you walk to Susie's desk and it's just Windex clean, right? Like all the family mm -hmm. photos, they're just gone. Well, that's okay. You know, I'll talk to Jimmy the next week and so forth. Right. So it was, it was a buildup of that where I think I just realized how precarious this is, this being our economy, but also our relationship to work in this country at, at the branding agency where I worked, it was the largest branding agency in the world at the time. And we all took a, a good deal of pride in working there. And sure. it became, it became our brand in a sense. So if you lost your job, well, now you got to figure out how to pay for rent. You got to figure out how to pay for your family, for food, for all that stuff. But you also have the larger question of what is your brand now? Like, what is your identity now? That question, again, it was less like a moment in time where it hit me and more just, it sat with me. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't shake it. So I, I, in some ways I still think about it. And that's, that's what led to me writing the book. Was it funny that, that you had always thought of yourself as a writer? Um, and then you, you went to work in copywriting as a way to pay the bills then to, to find yourself on the other side of this recession and, and, you know, your, uh, your sense of worth and, and all of that is tied up in this job that you didn't originally want to begin with. You right. know? And then right. it, it all kind of gets, it's funny how it all gets shuffled and, and priorities get mixed up. And, and, and that's something that you explore in this book, but when did, did all of that start kind of rolling around in, in your mind and start wrestling with it? Well, I think because I went into the job, I went into the job really wanting a job, but not wanting an identity. My identity right. was the poet. It was the creative writer. That's what, you know, it was, it was a little weird. Like whenever I would tell people I love poetry, I would usually get some strange faces, right? Cause who identifies as a poet? It's, it's right. It's, it's maybe a little pretentious, a little sensitive. It's just a little strange. Um, at least within the circles that I was hanging out with, but that was my identity. So when I started at the agency, I wasn't looking for an identity really, but you know, I think that one of the things that these agencies do really well is that they brand things and they brand you and you start getting the t-shirts and you start getting the business cards and you start getting the nickname at work. And like all of it contributes to a brand that's being built. On my business card, it didn't say copywriter. It said creative writer. The job posting was for a creative writer. And I always thought that was so savvy because that's how I saw myself. In, right. in a way, the job was being branded to me, right? Like I was the consumer because I got to go around, <laughs> you know, at bars and say, oh, you know, I'm better than a copywriter. I'm a creative writer. Here's my email. You know what I mean? It, yeah. it fed into my own um, aspirations for myself. So I, I'm not saying that I went into it like super clear eyed or anything. I, I was a dumb 21 year old like anyone else, but right. But I was very aware of the fact that like, I don't think this is going to be my lifetime gig. So let me just soak up as much of this as possible. 
Yeah. So when did you start working on the men can't be saved? When, when did you like in earnest think this is going to be a book? This is a project I'm working on. Yeah. It's a hard question for me to answer. I would say about a decade ago because I left, I left the agency full time. I still freelance for a few agencies, but I went to get my MFA in poetry, my, my master's of fine arts in poetry. And all during that time, I wasn't thinking about fiction at all. I was just writing poems, trying to put together the poetry book. And I was sending out my poetry book. I was waiting. It was getting rejected. Publishers didn't want it. Maybe they wanted it. They were going to wait. <laughs> and at some point it was like, I'm, I'm, I'm just in stasis here. So I got to yeah. do something. I, I need a new creative project. And that, that started about 10 years ago. Of Let me just, you know, kind of get back into that agency mindset and see what comes. Gotcha. Did, did you envision, um, this, this project? Did, did you have a, um, you know, a beginning, middle and end? Did, did it all come about as you're writing, you know, in, in, in fiction writing, we, we talk about people being in two camps generally, you know, pantsers or plotters, um, you know, one, do you, do you write by the seat of your pants and just, you know, as the story unfolds, or do you have a plan, uh, with your writing? And, you know, to be fair, uh, most people fall on a spectrum somewhere between the two of those camps. Um, but where do you see yourself? I'm team pants pretty hard. I'm team pants and I'm, I'm pretty far at the end of the spectrum. I'm at, it's, it's funny because I'm now working on a second novel, just at the very beginning. And I feel yeah. myself drifting more. Like I knew so little about novels when I started writing my novel, I, I started yeah. it 10 years ago. I wrote a first draft in about six weeks, but then I spent like nine years practically revising and reworking. So I wrote it very quickly very seat in my pants, kind of like a roller coaster, just, just go. And then I had to do the, the rigorous work later of cleaning it up. Now that I'm working on a second project, I understand fiction just a little bit better, which is not, I don't mean that in a, in a braggy way. I'm still very much in the dark, but yeah. the, best, the best preparation for how to write a novel is to write a novel. Cause you, you, you learn so much just from the process, whether or not it gets published or not. I, I deeply believe that. And so I almost kind of want to get back to that beginner's mindset of not knowing structure. Do you know what I mean? Because there's, mm -hmm. there's freedom in that not knowing. So I think my answer to you is that when I wrote the men can't be saved, I was very much seat of my pants. And as I'm getting older, maybe I'm feeling myself moving on that spectrum and I'm trying to fight it. Cause I, I think <laughs> there's more discovery. There's more fun to be had on that, on that other side for me. Sure. Sure. There's also, um, I like to refer to it as the gift of anonymity, um, mm. that like you said, you had 10 years to write this novel. There, there was no one knocking on your door, um, you know, demanding that Ben turn in his novel, you know, you know, you, this was right. I would have passion. wished, I would have wished for someone at that door. <laughs> right. Right. But you know, yeah. so you, you, it takes the time that it takes to, 
to get the novel ready and and to get it out to the world. Well, then you publish a book like The Men Can't Be Saved and, you know, it's getting some buzz and people are talking about it. And and then inevitably the question becomes, well, what is what else has Ben going to publish? And, you know, when when's your next book coming out, Ben? And, you know, then there's a certain pressure that comes with, uh, you know, this thing that you do. Are, are you feeling that now? And, and how do you um, how do you find that balance, you know? between taking a decade to write a novel and and you know following it up but also holding that creative freedom in 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 you know in the balance there yeah and thanks for the kind words it's it's you know it believe me it is thrilling and also a bit bewildering on some level that the book is reaching people because i spent so long with it just as a word document that my wife knew about yeah. and, you know i knew about and not too many other people so it's it's a great thrill and a great honor, but it's still so fresh and so new. I think this is where being a poet is helpful because when you're a poet, you don't expect anyone to read. At least I didn't, you know, like I just love poems. I'm going to make that yeah. my life. Hopefully I'll, I'll, you know, find a way to, to support myself. But I, I didn't have any expectation that there would be a publisher knocking down my door to publish my poems. I just, I knew that there wasn't an economy for it. So I realize intellectually that fiction is different, you know, and, and conceivably my agent or another publisher, you know, might, might, you know, want, want to take a look and see what's going on. But I, it's so important for it to be as good as I can make it. You know, I don't, I don't want it to go out the door too early. So, um, I think it's something to navigate, you know, and it's also, listen, it's a, it's a blessed position to be in, to feel sure. like, you're, you're producing work that someone else might want to read. That's a great, tremendous honor. So I think it's a problem for sure, but it's a problem that I'd be grateful to have. Yeah. Um, when we first started talking, Ben, I, I told you how much I enjoyed this book and, and how much joy that I got from reading it. And which is, which is an odd thing to say because the book really uh, tackles a lot of difficult subject matter and a lot of subject matter that uh that's that's hard to talk about and and that is um you know so triggering for a lot of people you know but does it in a way that uh you know a, a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down you know is mm. uh th there's something about levity that is injected into this book and the the humor that you slide these difficult conversations across the table um, along with a chuckle um, mm. that, that makes it so much easier to digest and then ultimately to talk about and, you know, to reflect upon. Because if we can look in the mirror with, with a smile on our face, it's, it's usually better to see those things that are difficult to see. Yeah. That's, I mean, thanks for saying that. It's a great honor. I don't want to get this wrong. So maybe I'll look up after, but I think, uh, the comedian Richard Pryor is the one who said that he loves to get people laughing. Cause if you get them laughing, they open their mouths and you can put the poison in. Um, you know, I think <laughs> yeah. that I, I, I love, um, I love books, movies, TV that blends the light and the dark. I I'm a big, did you watch succession? Uh, I, I watched the first two, two seasons, I think, and we've got to catch up on the rest, but okay. yeah, I, I'm, I'm familiar with the story. 
So I, and, and some people love it and some people hate it, but what's so great about that show to me is I think that show is incredibly dark. I mean, it's a real bleak picture <laughs> yes. of inequality in America today and um, family dysfunction and family dysfunction and, yeah. and abuse. I mean, it's like, it's really dark, but that's also the yeah. funniest show on TV. It's, it's the best written show. I mean, I crack up watching that show and I think, you know, we sort of arbitrarily have these genre distinctions where we want things to either live as a comedy or as a drama and whose life is like that. I mean, my, right. my life is not like that. Your life I'm sure is not like that. Like, you know, yeah. you have a tragic moment followed up by a hilarious moment. You know, you're going to your friend's funeral and then you step on dog shit on the way to the funeral. And I mean, it's like that, that's so much of what life is. Why are we putting up these walls? So, um, I love what you said because I, I wanted a book that felt like it could inhabit both worlds. And, um, I read this one review of the book this morning that talked about how it got the balance right between, um, just like sour and sweet or, or just, you know, light and dark or something. And it just really felt, um, it felt really rewarding because that was a lot of the nine years revising was trying to thread that needle so that it, it felt like a fun summer light read but one that didn't shy away from some pretty difficult concepts. Did you have a favorite character to write in this book? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Moon. Moon was my favorite character for folks who haven't read the book yet. Seth is the main character. You're going to spend a lot of time in the mind of this pretty egotistical copywriter um, who I think is endearing in certain ways, but certainly has an ego, but his best friend slash frenemy slash you know, um, most hated guy in the world is this character moon who works with him at the agency and is just so loud and so big and so offensive and never apologizes and, and is completely unencumbered. He's, he's a toxic guy who doesn't even know what toxic means. And yeah, whenever he would enter the book in a scene, I just, I loved it. It was, it, it, he has so much charisma and, um, and sense of danger to him. So that it was that, you know, he was my favorite character. And sometimes the, the characters that are the most opposite of you and, and that can just say things and do things that, that you would, Oh my gosh, I would never do that. That would, that would humiliate me. Those are the most fun to write a lot of times because like you said, the, the inhibition is just gone and it's so fun to, to just lay it all out there. Yeah. And that's to me, people have asked me, why did I write fiction instead of nonfiction? One answer is my life at the agency wasn't exciting enough to be a memoir. <laughs> who, who cared about what I did? At the agency? Right. It wasn't that fun. But the connected to that is that, you know, when you write fiction, you can go anywhere, you can create any character you can. So this guy, Moon, I'm not like him at all. At least I hope I'm not. But yeah, writing him was a way to embody this whole different mindset. Like, what would it be yeah. like to be this guy? That was a fun ride. I think I learned something, you know, in, in creating him. So um, that to me is part of the joy of, of fiction. When, and who was it that said that uh, fiction is the lie that tells the truth? There, right, right. You can almost be more honest in fiction than you can nonfiction in a way that mm -hmm. seems counterintuitive, but it's absolutely the truth. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. The men 
Can't Be Saved is available everywhere now. You can get it in hardcover or Kindle edition. Go visit your local bookstore, support local books, pick up a copy of it today. If you don't have a great local bookstore, we'll put links to it where you can grab it from Amazon. Um, have you listened to the audiobook yet, Ben? I, I, you know what? So I listened to, we had different um, folks audition. So I got to hear different clips and I just yeah. loved Jonathan's take. So I, I knew from the first paragraph, I was like, I think this guy's got it. Did you listen to I, it? I, I haven't yet, but it's in okay. my, uh, it's in my audible queue. And uh, I think this weekend I'm going to listen to it. I, I love getting an advanced reader copy, reading the book and then getting to listen to the audible production later and getting to experience the story all over again, you know, through a, wow. through, through a, a narrator. So uh, I'm going to, I can't wait to, to see how that, what that experience is like. Um, ben, if people are just discovering you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you're up to and follow along with, with news and upcoming events, is there a place online where they can connect with you? Yeah. Thank you, Hank. Um, you can check out my website. It's just my name, benperker.com. I'm also pretty active on Twitter and on Instagram. Also, my handles are just my name. This is one of the advantages of having a weird last name is that you, <laughs> yeah. you, you can get your digital properties pretty easily. So... Um, on Twitter and uh, Facebook and Instagram, I usually post events. And on my website, you can see both events and also some other things I've published. So, yeah, get in touch. Excellent. We'll link those up in the show notes as well to make it easier for folks to find you. Ben, this has been so much fun chatting. Uh, we're recommending everyone go grab the book. And uh, thank you for taking time to come on the show. Hank, it was such a pleasure. Really, thanks for the good question. That's our episode for today. There's so much more to come as we talk to authors about the craft of writing, but also the business of publishing. Be sure to subscribe to the StoryCraft Cafe podcast in your favorite podcast app so that you never miss an episode. The StoryCraft Cafe is made possible by Dabble. Writing a book is challenging. Your writing tool should not be. Dabble is an easy-to-use online writing tool packed with helpful features that allow beginning novelists and published authors to create amazing stories. Visit us at DabbleWriter.com and start your free trial today. Thanks for listening.